What's up, guys? Good morning. Good morning, good morning, Freedom House. Welcome. Today's a very special Sunday because we have a guest communicator that is here, a guest speaker, a guest teacher. Um, I'm going to introduce him in a second, but if you're new to Freedom House, we are a multi-site church, meaning we have, this is not the only physical location for Freedom House. We have a central location, or we call it central, which is in the university area. We also have a Lake Norman campus. We also have South End, as you know. And then we're online every Sunday, uh, streaming from our, our central campus. And we have uh, something that's called a teaching team, which is a little bit different. So we have a group of communicators who teach at each campus every single week. And there's a rotation. So each week that you come to the church, we'll all be teaching out of the same series. Right now it's dark versus light. But you will have a different communicator teaching on what God has given them through the Spirit to, to um to share with the congregation on this particular topic as it relates to Scripture. Now, this morning, I have the privilege and opportunity of introducing our guest speaker. He's not really a guest. He's here all the time. You may have seen him in kids' ministry. This is, this is the house, but he is a guest to South End Campus because he hails from Lake Norman Campus. He is the leader of our FH Kids Ministry. So if you have kids, you need to be thanking this guy. He, lead, he is the dean of our Freedom Academy School. He is an awesome father to a beautiful wife. He's a great dad to two beautiful girls. And this guy is a biblical scholar, man. If you have any questions about the Bible, this is your go-to. He is your go-to. Don't come to me. Go to Pastor Sam. Will you guys please stand to your feet and give a warm welcome to Pastor Sam Taylor. Good morning, good morning. Please be seated. That's a lot of pressure right there. Ask me any question about the Bible. Maybe do that starting at like noon. I don't know, just yet, not, not before. No, thank you so much, Pastor Matt. Thank you so much, South End. So yes, I am a youth pastor, which means out of the gate, I tend to be a high energy guy. Pastor Diana would not let me leave the green room without a coffee this morning. So look out is all I, all I know to say. So <clears throat> let's get into this. I will try and talk less than 500 words a minute, but no promises. So we're going to open with a verse from John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus was fond of speaking in parables, but in this moment, he is speaking very clearly. Jesus, who is the word made flesh, he is the light of the world. In him, there is no darkness. And in his presence, the darkness must flee. Now, 20 verses later, he makes the statement upon which Freedom House was founded. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you Now, this is Jesus again speaking clearly. Light illuminates truth, and truth brings freedom. Not the freedom to live however you want, free of consequence. Calvin actually said it great. It is the freedom to choose you this day whom you will serve. Who is your master? Jesus then drives this statement home six chapters later, John 14. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, those three statements highlight a very 
clear message. The light that illuminates your path to salvation, to heaven, to your purpose on earth. They are found in God's word. The immutable, infallible, inerrant word of God. Now this word, we know where it is. We know where to find it. We know it's in the Bible. So we know it is crucial that we get it inside of us. Because once we have the word of God within us, then we can truly live like Jesus. We can be light bearers to those that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. But to truly live like Jesus, it is not going to be enough to read God's word. It's not going to be enough to memorize God's word. If you want to live like Jesus, then you have got to live the Bible in every facet of your life. And to live it, you're going to have to believe it. The disciples were willing to die for Jesus Christ because of what they saw on the cross, what they saw in the empty tomb, and then what they saw at the ascension. We have got to have that same conviction in every facet of our life if we truly want to live like Jesus. Because then... And only then will we have the courage and the conviction to stand on our faith when the word of God is questioned. And make no mistake, it will be questioned. Now those of you in this crowd who are younger, those of you that have got children, I want you to take extra special care in this message today. Because the devil has got a very specific attack aimed at you. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to destroy the faith of an entire nation, an entire generation of people. He wants to replace the truth that is the light of God's word with the darkness and the half-truths and false narratives of the world. And we have got to be alert. It is a responsibility to know the Bible so we can defend it no matter the cost. So today is about affirming the truth of the Bible, and that it can withstand any question from a non-believer, from someone questioning the veracity of Scripture. And then I want to take that one step further and give you the courage and conviction so that you are emboldened to proclaim the gospel and answer the Great Commission. Listen to this opening from Proverbs. Now, Proverbs was penned by Solomon. What's important about Solomon is second only to Pastor Matt Henderson, Only to Pastor Matt is the wisest man to have ever lived. Mm -hmm. Mm. Right. Now the pressure's on you, big boy. So that's all I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, that statement is simple in its verbiage, but it is profound in its exegesis. Fear of the Lord, meaning reverent awe of the Lord, that is the foundation upon which you must build all knowledge. How you think about faith, how you think about family, how you think about your future, all of it. It is saying that until you acknowledge God is deservant of reverent awe, you can never truly know anything. 
Now, the world is going to tell you quite the opposite. They're going to seek every opportunity to question the Bible's veracity, its authenticity, all of it. And there are many forms that this takes. You've got the crazy, angry atheist, right, who will speak from the book of First Opinions, chapter 2, all the time, right? You worship a fairy sky daddy, angry. There is the social justice warrior who is desperate to regurgitate woke talking points and will tell you that God uses they, them pronouns. And then there is the person who actually thinks he has found an error in the Bible, the deconstructionist. Now, some people, you may be wondering out there, what is deconstruction? Well, the Bible, the Bible dictionary defines deconstruction as a challenge to the attempt to establish any ultimate or secure meaning in a text. But in theology and apologetics, it is an attempt to question Scripture in an effort to undermine the Bible as the authoritative source in your life. The goal is to cast doubt upon any aspect of it. It could be authorship, it could be content, it could be translation. Now, deconstruction is trendy at the moment, especially amongst our younger generation. And here is the premise. If I can prove that any one of the 31,102 verses of the Bible are incorrect, then it stands to reason it is not the infallible word of God. And if it is not the infallible word of God, then it stands to reason at some point man probably inserted his opinion into the content. And if man inserted his opinion into the content, then it stands to reason I cannot trust the translation. And if I cannot trust the translation, then it is nothing more than an antiquated document written by a ruling class to keep me in subservience. And as such, I refuse to spend a moment of my life honoring now, y'all, we've got to guard against that type of thinking. But let me, let me encourage you. We also cannot run away from it when people wish to engage in that conversation. Many of the people practicing deconstruction really think they have the answers. At one point in time, many of them had a relationship with Jesus, but for whatever reason, they've fallen away, and deconstruction is the manner in which they maintain their posture, and their justification for why they left. Never forget, Jesus died for all of us when we were yet sinners. He never stopped chasing us, and he never will. So we have to go after the deconstructionists with the same heart, the same determination. But it means we've got to know our Bible. We've got to know the truth, and we've got to be willing to stand on it irrespective of popular opinion. I mean, let's be honest, culture today growing increasingly secular, and the world is getting darker because of it. What amazes me is that in as little as 20 years, which is half a generation by biblical standards, think about how much the concept of truth and morality has changed. 20 years ago, much of what was taught in the Bible was considered basic morality. People may not have gone to church, they may not have read their Bible, they may not have even believed in Jesus, but much of what was in Scripture was accepted as truth. Fast forward 20 years and the world is completely upside down. And suddenly the church, the Bible, instead of being purveyors of truth, suddenly we are oppressors. We are bigots. We are brainwashed sheep bought into the systemic racism of the patriarch or whatever that group of words together even means. I have no idea. 
And you will have non-Christians who are telling us they are the moral ones. We are narrow-minded. How dare we say marriage is just between a man and a woman? How dare we be so simple as to think there are only two genders? In essence, the biblical truth that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom has been replaced by the euphemism of reverent awe of self is the beginning of happiness and tolerance. I mean, we've all been in those debates, right? Somebody asks you your opinion about something, you cite the Bible for why you have a certain belief, and then they throw the Bible at you using verse after verse, often out of context and inaccurately translated for why you are wrong, the Bible can't be true, and is certainly not the infallible word of God. And my response is always the same. If you truly believe the Bible was written by man and not by God, you have obviously not read Leviticus or Numbers. I mean, look, if man wrote this book, do you really think he would have concocted something like this? This is Numbers 29. Get ready. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. And you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, 13 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs a year old. They shall be without blemish, and their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two-tenths for each of the rams, and a tenth for each of the 14 lambs. Also... One male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. <laughs> Look, all I'm saying, if Mendez and I were writing this, it would have said, we're going to grill some hot dogs. <laughs> we might give the priest a tomahawk, and we're going to turn on Sunday ticket. Right? Look, I, right? We might have gone for brats. I, I don't know. But yeah, look, I just, but this is a very real threat to millions of Americans. We have got millions of souls whose eternal lives are hanging in the balance. People are searching for truth. They are desperate for truth. And if we're not willing to share it with them, Instagram will. Facebook, well, liberal universities absolutely will, right? But the reality is much of what is being taught in the world is not light, so it is not truth. They are teaching darkness that is shrouding people from the truth because we as the church are not speaking it with authority. The big C church, meaning each and every one of us. And here is what we should be teaching. It is fine to question the Bible in an effort to better understand God and your relationship with him. It is not okay to doubt the Bible in an effort to give you a license to live a life contrary to Scripture. So today I want to address three categories of questions that we often hear from the non-believers. And I want to showcase how the Bible's truth will vanquish that every single time. So we're going to tackle questions on past, questions on prophecy, and questions on purpose. All right, here is the first one, questions on the past. 
To the non-believer, this feels like cannon fodder. There is no way that Moses split the Red Sea. There is no way Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. There is no way a bunch of people screamed really loud and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. And my answer back is always the same. You may not understand every miracle in the Bible. But have you really never seen the miraculous in your life? You may not have seen God split the Red Sea, but have you ever watched God split your Red Sea? More to the point, the Bible has never been proven to be wrong. Let that sink in for a minute. Think about that. All the critiques, all the criticism, all the arguments, all the debates, never once has it been found to be an error. Quite the opposite. You've got many times where the Bible has been correct when modern archaeology and modern science have said otherwise. Dr. Woody Bauckham says it like this. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They reported supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. So the question of how do you respond to those attacks, it's simple. You know your Bible. You know out of the gate that it is correct and accurate, and then you do your research so you can supplement those truths. I mean, you think about Nineveh. You remember from the book of Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I'm going to not Nineveh. I'm going anywhere else, right? Nineveh was considered the stuff of legends until 1847, when a man named Austin Henry Lanyard suddenly unearthed it. Sargon the Great, seen time and time again in the Bible, was considered this amalgamation of historical figures until suddenly his palace was unearthed, 200 rooms and 30 courtyards. How about Joseph in Egypt? Now, this one I love. Because you would say on the surface, there is no way some naive Canaanite, he's the youngest of 12 brothers, his dad gives him this really fancy coat, he makes his brothers angry, he gets sold into slavery, goes down to Egypt, gets hired by Potiphar, gets in trouble with Hotiphar, ends up in prison, and eventually becomes number two across all of Egypt, just under Pharaoh. Consider this, Genesis 41. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, if that is simply a story, why do so many archaeological facts line up with the Genesis account? The Bible is clear this happened 4,000 years ago. So is it really coincidence that 4,000 years ago, a man-made canal was created in the Nile 
that allowed it to overflow more banks than ever before and by extension harvest more grain than at any point in history? Is it merely coincidence that up until 4,000 years ago, there were lots of smaller pharaohs, feudal lords and vassals, but in this time period, power was consolidated to a single pharaoh as others sold their land, their livestock, eventually their freedom. If you continue in the Genesis account, you will see that very same thing happen. And you ask, how was one pharaoh able to obtain such control? Well, it's simple. He had the grain, he had the means, he had the waterway that allowed him to sell and keep Egypt alive and keep Egypt afloat. The name of that waterway is Bar Yusuf, which translates to Joseph's Waterway. And for those of you that say, well, it was probably a very common name. Joseph is not an Egyptian name. There were not 58,000 Joseph Smiths running around in Egypt, okay? It is a Hebrew name, and it means Jehovah shall add. Now, if that is not enough, you take them to the region of Goshen. Also in the Bible, the archaeological site is a place called Avaris. And you will notice all of these Canaanite, all of these Egyptian dwellings, but there is a Canaanite dwelling in the midst of it. The Canaanites were shepherds, and Goshen was the land of the sheep. And in this Canaanite dwelling, in the backyard, there are 12 tombs. 11 tombs are the same height, but there is a 12th that is much higher. And on it is painted a man with a coat of many colors. Now, at that point, the conversation shifts. Now, like, oh, the Old Testament's written so long ago. I need eyewitnesses. Fantastic. Take them to the New Testament. Let's check out the opening from Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things they have seen and accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Listen, Luke was all about the details. Fact after fact in his writing, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts can be corroborated outside of Scripture. Seasons, ships, governors, events, all of it can be corroborated outside of the Bible. But what is fascinating is how far and wide you realize it was accepted, it being his gospel, was accepted as authentic within the first century A.D. Now, Dr. Frank Turek talks about this. He wrote an amazing book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. If you have not read it, But he talks about the Apostle John having a disciple named Polycarp. Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. Now, between the two of them, They quote 23 of the 27 books that we think of as New Testament canon. Polycarp was born in 69 and died in 155. Irenaeus died in 202, which shows you how quickly the gospel had spread. The historian Eusebius authenticated Matthew and Mark's gospels as authentic, true, and he said, I confirm this veracity as early as 120 AD. But that is honestly not what clinches it for me. I think about Acts chapter 7, the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, if you have read Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives an amazing defense 
of Christianity. And then he is stoned. It is the first time we meet a man named Saul of Tarsus who holds the coats of the executioners. Now, what I find fascinating is that martyrdom is described in exquisite detail. But nowhere in the 28 chapters of Acts do we hear about the martyrdom of Paul, the martyrdom of Peter, the martyrdom of James, the half-brother of Jesus. There is no mention of the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which Jesus predicted. Now listen, if you want to sell people on Christianity, sliding in some of those details is a pretty good way to do it. Which begs the question, why aren't they included in the book of Acts? And the answer is simple. They hadn't happened at the time of writing. Acts was written somewhere between 55 and 65 A.D. That means there were many alive who would have witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection, but none of it is refuted in non-biblical writings of the time, from the Romans, from the Sanhedrin, which is fascinating and shows you it could not be disputed because many people had accepted it as a historical, factual event. This is much akin to the events of 9-11. Now, many of us remember where we were when 9-11 happened. I was in the Yukon camping. The smoke, the fear, the ash, the towers falling. Now, if somebody were to write a book tomorrow to tell you the Twin Towers never existed, Osama bin Laden was a philanthropist. There would be millions of people who would say, that's a lie. It radically impacted my life, and I'm willing to fight against this to prove it's not true. It is almost the exact same length of time from when Luke witnessed Jesus' resurrection and he wrote the book of Acts. It shows you many of people would have been, many people would have been alive. They could have refuted it, but they couldn't discredit it because it had happened. Now, realistically, I acknowledge that we're not all Dr. Terrible. Some of you may be out there saying, Sam, these examples are fantastic, but you probably spent two and a half months researching this, and you've given us four things. <laughs> Fair. Listen, what I want to encourage you with today, when you can't rely on the Bible's story, rely on your story. You don't have to know every fact of the Bible, but you do have to know every fact about you, which conveniently you do. So when somebody says, well, what do you think about the Nephilim and the Rephaim and blah, 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 you say, I don't know. But let me tell you what Jesus did for me. The Bible is true. Always has been. Always will be. And all of it will be revealed in the fullness of time. And speaking of time, that is the second attack that you will get on your faith. Questions about prophecy. Now, this one takes a different tactic. This one says there is simply no way all of the 2,500 prophecies that are mentioned in the Bible could have really happened or will come to pass. What they discount is the 2,000 prophecies that have already occurred, 300 of which fulfilled by the Messiah himself. So the response is much like the first one. You may not be pointing them to places, but now you are pointing them to specific events in history. 
There's a historian named Hugh Ross, and he compiled some of the truly amazing examples that are found in the Bible. I wanted to share a couple of those with you. Sometime before 500 B.C., the prophet Daniel proclaimed that Israel's long-awaited Messiah would begin his public ministry 483 years after the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, that's a pretty specific date. The decree, decree regarding the restoration of Jerusalem was issued by Persia's king Artaxerxes to the Hebrew priest Ezra in 458 B.C. 483 years later, the ministry of Jesus Christ begins in Galilee. 700 B.C., the prophet Micah says, The tiny village of Bethlehem will be the birthplace of Israel's Messiah. 400 years before the crucifixion was invented, Israel's King David and the prophet Zechariah predicted the Messiah would die via that method of execution. But they then said that contrary to the method of execution, not a single one of his bones would be broken. Now, with crucifixion, normally to accelerate asphyxia, you have to break the legs of the condemned so they'll suffocate. Jesus allowed himself to die so quickly, they didn't have to do that. They actually fulfilled a different prophecy because they had to pierce his side instead. Now, Ross goes on to say the probability of all of these prophecies being fulfilled without error independently is less than one times ten to the 2,000th power. It's, you know what? That's a great segue. Can we show what 2,000 zeros would look like? I mean, we didn't even plan that. That was perfect. What a great not audience plant right there. But listen, y'all. That's just the equation. That's not the calculation. Because if you do the calculation, this is what you get. Good luck getting that in your graphing calculator. That's all I'm saying. <clears throat> but it is not just those prophecies that have already happened. It's the ones still to come, the 500 in number. And this is how I think you respond. This is how I think it becomes real. Because if you look around right now, Tell me that you do not see the book of Revelation on full display. You see love growing cold, replaced by love of self. You see idolatry running rampant. You see sin being labeled as good, righteousness being labeled as bigotry. Now, Dr. David Jeremiah wrote a fascinating book called The World at the End, and he was clear that while we might not know when the end of days will come, we know what the world will look like. And God was very clear on that. Something called the Olivet Discourse. Listen to what he says in Matthew 24. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you are not alarmed. For the end must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated 
by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now listen. People may tell you that the Bible isn't real. But when they do, point them back to the world and say, have you ever seen such division in your lifetime? Political parties, states, within your own family. Listen, a war started in Israel yesterday. Three earthquakes worldwide yesterday. Are these just coincidences? Absolutely not. Love of God and culture going up or down. Love of self in culture going up or down. Crime in cities going up or down. Pastors preaching woke, heretical gospels from the platform on the rise or diminishing. And for churches like this one that speak the truth, what do they call us? Homophobes. A front for the Republican Party. A cult. Does it sound like we're making friends? I mean, listen, you can question the words in Paul's letters. You can, you can debate which books should or should not have been included in the Apocrypha. You can argue about who wrote the book of Hebrews. But what you cannot do is dispute the fact that every warning in the Old and the New Testament about allowing culture and the worldly ways into the church and into society are coming true right now. Evil is increasingly visible in our society today. The devil isn't hiding because he knows his time is short. And you ask, why don't people see it? Well, the simple answer, people's minds have been darkened by woke theology in society. It's rich in love, but it is light in truth. Listen, the woke gospel is a deceptive one that will shield you temporarily, but it will condemn you eternally. Truth is what will protect you eternally. But so many people today view truth as contrary to love instead of realizing giving people truth is the greatest way to love them. But what is key? You've got to be listening for truth in order to actually hear it. Now, back in 2011, my wife Jenny and I lived in Singapore. And I'm going to give you all a moment to think about this southern accent in Singapore. Believe it or not, there was a time I actually ran international payroll for corporate banks. And so we were sent to Singapore to run benefits and retirement for Asia and Australia. So I get off the plane, go to the boardroom for my first meeting, and my team is 10 females between the ages of 20 to 22, as well as two that are in Hong Kong. So I go around the room, and I'm like, all right, let's get an update. Jakarta, sounds good. Bangkok, sounds good. Sydney, sounds good. And I get to the phone and I say, hey, Winnie, can we get an update from Hong Kong? Crickets. I'm like, maybe she's nervous because I'm, I'm the big boss moving town. So I change to my professional voice. <laughs> hey, Winnie, can we get an update from Hong Kong? <laughs> Nothing. Now I'm angry. I'm thinking she's probably on her phone. She's not paying attention. 
but one of the team leads beside me says, I think I probably just need to translate. And I'm like, this is going to be an amazing moment. She's going to speak Cantonese into the polycom. Winnie leans over and in English says, the team lead says, Winnie, can we get an update from Hong Kong? Winnie starts talking immediately. Right? Five people resigned from my team that week, for the record. Yeah. So what was fascinating there, the words were the same, but the difference was the crowd was trained to hear the message a certain way. They were not trained to hear the East Tennessee accent from someone born with dulcet tones from Rocky Top. <laughs> no. They were trained to hear people that spoke the same way they did, that had the same inflection. See, in Singapore, they don't speak English. They speak Singlish. It's just different enough that you have to be listening for it to know what they're truly asking. Mm. The reality is they were trained for the inflection and the cadence of their culture. The words were equal. The delivery was different. And that is what is happening in the modern world because people's ears are no longer trained to hear the truth. When I say God is love, I mean God loves you. He will always call you higher and he will point out when you need correction. When the world says God is love, it means you can live however and love whomever you want. Exact same words, completely different meaning. Because now more than ever, people are twisting God's word. They're taking scripture out of context. They're rewriting it. They're omitting the parts they don't like. And as a result... What used to be considered an absolute standard of truth is now a point of contention and confusion. And so doubt grows. And if it's left unchecked, meaning if we don't combat that with defense of God's word, it could lead to people doubting the veracity of the Bible and the very nature and truth of who God is, which ultimately is the greatest attack from anybody who does not believe Scripture, questioning our purpose while we're here on earth. Now, you think about how many times God speaks to your identity in Scripture. Psalms 139, 14, Behold, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Jeremiah 1, 5, Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 29, 11, Behold, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord your God. Plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope and a future. Esther 4, 14, But who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? And especially this from John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, those are crystal clear truths from the Bible. God loves you. He's got a plan for you. He's going to be with you every step of the way. But only if your questions are Jesus how can you work through me? God, what is your will for my life? Holy Spirit, show me what great thing you would have me do, even if the world says not great. Because if your questions are, how do we even know if Esther existed? Or do you really think Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations? You missed the point. If you start with the truth that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, then all of your research, it's just going to point you deeper to the truth of who God is. And by extension, 
your purpose and your relationship with him. But if you start with the premise that the Bible isn't true, unless it can only be true via external sources, you'll never see what God has for you because you're allowing the darkness of the world to shroud you from your true identity. Never accept the label, the identity the world gives you. Remove the shroud, remove the darkness, and remember you are sons and daughters of the high king, of the most high God. Amen. So when you are confronted by anybody who questions the Bible, who questions your faith, who questions your commitment to Christ, you stand firm on this truth. The Bible's history of the past was true. The prophecies written in it are coming true. So you know that the purpose God has for you is true. I'm going to say that again. Don't miss this. The Bible's history of the past was true. The prophecies written in it are coming true. So you know that the purpose God has for you is true. Would you stand on your feet? Now, normally, I, I begin my closing with wise words from somebody like Tozer or Spurgeon. But today, I'm quoting Denzel Washington. And St. Denzel said, I would rather be condemned by man for standing with God than condemned by God for standing with man. And at the end of the day, that's the question, right? You're all going to have a fiery furnace. The only question is, who's standing outside it, filling it up? And who's standing right beside you? Listen, if you're standing on God's word, if you're standing with God, he can handle your questions. He wants your questions. But if you aren't standing with God, it can be convenient now. But if you go down that dark path or you allow friends and family to go down that dark path, consider this warning from the tail end of the Bible, the last chapter of Revelation. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you say, that's me, I have never had a relationship with Jesus, or I did at one time, but have fallen away, now is your moment. Listen, you are never going to have all the answers on this side of eternity. And that is okay. That is by design, because that is where faith, that is where trust in God comes in. Make sure that you're standing on the truth, not just a truth. If you say that's me, if you say I want Jesus to be Lord and Savior in my life, would you raise your hand for me? I see that hand. 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 God bless. Amen. We're going to say this prayer all together right now. I'm going to say it, and then you're going to repeat after me. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you so much for truth, for being the way, the truth, and the life. 
I make you Lord and Savior of my life. Help me to go in paths of service and love all my days. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Give God a big hand clap.